the journey is finally complete. From the bottom to the top, Rangers are champions of Scotland. So much pressure on his shoulders. Not that you would ever guess it. A critical goal as Wickham try and try and chart away to an improbable second season in the championship. He's through the Hello and welcome to the Hopeless Wonder podcast with me, Adam Gipke, Craig Rogers and Andy McBride. And if you happen to be watching with us right now live, say hello and make yourself known. But if you're listening to us right now, great to have you on. So in traditional Hopeless Wonder podcast tradition, we also have a guest this week. So we'll introduce him. He's our very own John Motson of the Southampton variant. He's also a commentator for the Southampton Audio Description Service. And uh, you can also hear him as the host of the podcast of Under the Lights. So we welcome onto the show tom murray so welcome to the show tom how have you been keeping and welcome to the pod thank you very much for having me on yeah uh doing all right actually since we actually got our first win of the season so all <laughs> think all seems rosy champions league qualification is only a few months away <laughs> good times and i'm sure we'll uh get the listener to understand a bit more about southampton because we'll have to say on this podcast we don't talk a lot about southampton but We'll go into detail in no doubt of time. And we'll also welcome our co-host. So uh, a rather giddy Craig to introduce back onto the pod. Um, and we missed you for the international fixtures. But uh, whilst you were in Scotland, you bumped into your hero, Ali McCoy. So that was also topped off by the fact that he called you big man. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be hard to top that off. But welcome back to the pod, Craig. How have you been keeping? Yes, I've been good. I've been good up in Scotland last weekend to take in the Rangers game. And like we spoke about off air, bumped into one of my, my childhood heroes, which was quite insane. And given the amount of times I've drunkenly made Adam watch Ali McCoy's highlight videos to, to meet him in person <laughs> and send Adam the text, it was quite quite a unique experience. But yeah, looking forward to the pod tonight and chat some football. Good stuff. And Andy, we won't spoil for the listeners the new segment that we've got for the podcast. And I'm not talking about the Arkardashians, um, but in typical fashion, you've also been calling out some stereotypes to be your specialist subjects. Um, that's also introduced by the Newcastle fan base. Um, but before we talk about that and more, how have you been keeping, mate? Yeah, not too bad. Um, I just... Yeah, solid, solid week at work. I've handed in my resignation. <laughs> I've agreed. I've agreed terms of a permanent deal for a new job. So, <laughs> waiting for the contract to be signed. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's the personal news front. But other than that, it's all good. Were you released on a free, or did, were you, did someone pay for you? Oh no, no, no! I'll put in a transfer request. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've gone for the project, i.e. they've offered me more money. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You mean someone's yeah. tapped you up there? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, literally a week ago, I was like, I'm not leaving, I'm, co- I'm committed to the club, I don't want to go. And then, you know, I've been tapped up a week later. You called a Fabian Delph there, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll have to tap into your agent, that's for sure, Andy. So Anyway, let's get this. Yeah. <laughs> let's get this podcast started. Um, uh, we were going to introduce the stereotype of Newcastle being bad, um, but yeah, it seems like that narrative has changed slightly. So uh, we have now got the announcement of Steve Bruce coming out of his, that role at Newcastle, but potentially uh, Paulo Fonseca has been announced in the last few hours as potentially being the in manager. So. Um, Craig, I mean, forgetting about what happened basically last part of two weeks, um, what do you make of Bruce going out of the job and potentially Fonseca replacing him? Uh, well, firstly, Bruce being let go is, yeah, it was always going to happen. Um, I'm surprised they actually let him take another game. And after seeing the performance against Spurs, I'm not surprised that they didn't let it go any further than that. Mm. They, were, they were rotten uh, at the weekend. So not surprised that he is gone. Fonseca is an interesting one because, as you know, I've got a soft spot for Roma. I watched mm. a lot of the football when he was at Roma and they played some okay stuff, but didn't really pull up any trees. Didn't really challenge any of the big sides. And you know that my pet peeve for years with Roma is they beat all the, the draws, but they never, ever, ever win against any teams in about them. So it's not like he's got a fantastic track record, um, Fonseca. So a bit of a strange one for me. Um, also, when you look at who else is linked, and um, Unai Emery's been linked as well. And you, if you look at those two CVs, Unai Emery's won, although he's a bit of a bad name since he was at Arsenal, but he's won the Europa League multiple times. You know, he's he's a successful coach, and Fonseca's really won nothing. So it's quite strange to see them both being looked at. The style of football isn't exactly the same either, so it's quite a strange list. But I've also seen Lampard mentioned, Gerard, Eddie Howe. Mm. I've seen Conte. I've seen them also. I think they're just throwing shit at the wall and see what sticks at the moment. There'll be no shortage of suitors, but Fonseca for me was a strange one when I read that because he's not really pulled up any trees in any job that he's really been at. I think he did mm. all right at Shakhtar though, didn't he? Like he won, I was just having a quick look. No, he won the league. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, no, granted, I mean, it, it's Shakhtar and it? it's like PSG yeah. in the league in France, but yeah, I well, think, yeah. I think but you know, I suppose he has won stuff technically. I think the three of us could probably win the, the, <laughs> yeah, the, the Um So, yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. But will it be an upgrade on Steve Bruce? Absolutely, of course it will. But Fonseca, mm. it was a bit of a, a strange one for me. Tom, if I get your opinions on Newcastle, obviously earlier this season, Southampton got a draw against that Newcastle squad. Um, it feels like Newcastle are a bit of a project at the moment, but we've been calling it on our pods in the last few episodes that actually the concentration this season should be about staying up. Um, do you think they've got the players at this point to keep them up? Because, you know, I think Southampton almost could have got out of that result against Newcastle with a win, potentially. But, um, yeah, what's your thoughts overriding around Newcastle anyway? Well, first, I've got to start with the fact that we've managed to get a draw away at the biggest club in the world, which obviously is <laughs> the best result anyone could have hoped for. It was a really, to, but in all honesty, it was a really weird game. Newcastle were atrocious um, and they were playing five at the back and four in the middle with just one up top at home against Southampton. And their fans were quite mm. rightly really annoyed at that. They were hardly attacking. They were just sitting back and then just hitting it long for Sam Maximan to run after it. 
Uh, on any other day, we would have won that game. We had lots and lots of chances. Unfortunately, they all fell to Musa Gineppo, who can't finish for anything. Um, but, I mean, the, the equaliser came from Elianusi managing to uh, fall over for a cross, heading it onto his knee off the post and back off his head whilst he was on the floor and come <laughs> back in. So I know sometimes you need a goal like that to go in. And, and then I thought we'd lost it in the last minute. And then VAR decided to give us a penalty in the very last minute. So in the end, with the circumstances, I take the point. Uh, I, they need to get this appointment right because mm. otherwise they are going to be pretty much... They, they're probably going to be marooned at the bottom by the time they're allowed to spend any money in January. Uh, so at the moment, they, they need to stay up. They're not going to qualify for the Champions League overnight as much as their fans would like to. This is a terrible squad that happened to have a couple of top six players. If they didn't have San Maximan, uh, they'd, be bo- they'd be below Norwich at the moment. Yeah. Um, it's a championship level squad, I think. Uh, when you pick some of the names, you know, John Joe Shelby, Isaac Hayden, uh, Matt Ritchie mm-hmm. is playing at left back. It's, it's, I mean, it's a very poor, it's a very poor squad. And this might be like a hot take, but I think Steve Bruce actually did a fairly decent job to finish 12th and 13th with that team. Uh, yes, they're playing some atrocious football, but with the squad that he has, I don't think you're going to get much better than that. So if it's going to be a real, a real test to see who they bring in, because if they don't get it right, uh, then it's not going to make much difference. And despite all of the backing in the world, they could go down mm. in the first season. Andy, it sounds like uh, the Sam Aladici horn has got to come out then potentially to keep this squad up. Well, they already, already blew that horn about 10 years ago, didn't they? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I suppose that's the thing, though, is that um, the, the, if it was me, just for the next, because football is a very short term sport, really, isn't it? Like everyone talks about four or five year projects, but it ultimately all goes to shit when you lose a few games. Um, they could have done, in my view, they could have done with someone, again, it's a bit of a hot take from me, someone like a Roy Hodgson. Um, I know it's not exactly an attractive name, but he would have mm. he would have been able to shore them up and keep them in the Premier League because he, he's done it over the years at Fulham. He's done it for a good few years at Crystal Palace. Um, I think Newcastle have always relied on the fact that there's three typically been three worse teams than them because mm. Mike Ashley run that team on the absolute cheap. Um, and, and you're right, um, it is basically a bunch of, um, as Tom said, a bunch of championship players with what, Callum Wilson when he's fit, um, Sam Maximan, um, and they've, they've got a couple of decent goalkeepers between, and that's pretty much it in terms of Premier League quality. Um, but yeah, I think mm-hmm. with Steve Bruce, obviously, I think I did see that he'd only won seven out of his past like 37 Premier League games, which under anybody's book is relegation form. Um, but and it's also if they do spend the money in January, there's no guarantee that they'll actually stay up. Like, I think you, I think you all remember when Fulham went off a couple of years back, and um, they spent about 100 million pounds in one transfer window, went for about three or four different managers, um, and were nowhere near. And even last season, mm. well, before COVID, um, they did the same thing. So, yeah, it's, there's no guarantee that they'll do it, and it does seem from the early reports that I've seen, there doesn't seem to be a defined structure in terms of who makes the footballing decisions, who decides who's coming in or who's coming out. And that they are started from scratch. Um, and yeah, they've got to get that right pretty quickly because um, it would be really hilarious if they were the richest club in the world playing Preston North End next season. 
Yeah. Well, if I stick with you, Andy, obviously we had our kind of regular podcast listener, Stephen Cole, give us this question, which was, do we think it's childish that the EPL are doing all they can to prolong Newcastle's push to the top via sponsorship for now when the Qataris have been doing it for years? Obviously quite a juicy kind of question for us. So, um, yeah, considering the hypocrisy of some of the teams that voted against it. But, yeah, let's start with your point of view. Yeah, it, it's just quite depressing when you see stuff like that because, you know, me, you know, us on the pods and journalists and podcasts elsewhere have been calling out the takeover for the evidence sports washing exercise, mm. which it is, um, you know, calling out the fact that, um, you know, the public investment fund, you know, how the Premier League judge that was separate from the Saudi state um, is some excellent mental gymnastics going on there. But, Newcastle fans have felt from the take from their point of view, they've always felt that the Premier League was basically a big cartel and that would do everything to stop this takeover from happening. Um, or because they didn't want a successful Newcastle and it'd be another team challenging for the Champions League spots. And to be fair, they've been proved right. So, you know, as much as you could say the circumstances of the takeover are wrong, well, the Premier League's actions since then are wrong because they've kicked up a right stink. Now, I can see why they're doing it because, um, obviously, Manchester City and PSG, they've done a similar practice where they've, you know, used, you know, very closely related companies, shall we say, uh, to get quite lucrative sponsorship deals. I remember back in, like, 2014 when they got the Etihad deal with their stadium it was like worth like 250 million pounds a season and I'm like Manchester City are not worth that in a million years mm. but it's been but they're not doing it out of um any goodwill or anything like or integrity of the competition we're doing it to just try and stop a rival um it mm. was quite interesting is that the, the team that abstained from voting surprisingly enough was Manchester City <laughs> uh because they argue that it's um unlawful shock horror uh because who'd want to start going into their accounts again um but yeah I think it I think they're just delaying the inevitable to be honest with you like you know Mike Ashley was basically used Sports Direct as a free sponsor. So mm. Newcastle for years have actually spent probably where they should have been getting money for stadium sponsorship deal. They were taking advantage of, and now you've just seen the opposite happen. So yeah, I think come the end of the season, they will have a, a brand new shiny sponsor of a company that we've never heard of. Uh, <laughs> for X, you know, they'll have their stadium sponsored, they'll have the kit sponsored. You know, they'll have the training ground sponsored and they'll be able to generate a lot of uh, sponsorship revenue through that. Um, and because Premier League club, I mean, Premier League clubs have been doing it for years. So, yeah, it, it does stink of hypocrisy. Like I said, it doesn't make the whole takeover thing right all of a sudden. But I can see where Newcastle fans are coming from because it is born out of um, not, you know, trying to start trying to stop the rivals. No other way about it. Mm. Tom, from your point of view, obviously you're at different end of the spectrum looking into this obviously it feels like now if you're a premier league club you have to be backed by billionaires as opposed to millionaires nowadays obviously we'll talk about southampton in a bit more detail later in the pods but yeah from your point of view how does this come across to you as a southampton fan uh, as a southampton fan i wouldn't I, i'd be lying if i said i wasn't slightly jealous that it's not us that's being taken over and have all of that money um, injected into it. Obviously, you, you, everyone else dreams of 
having someone come and sweep you off your feet and suddenly you're challenging for the Champions League, having been absolutely nowhere near that. Uh, mm. I mean, we're yet to see that with Newcastle. We'll have to see how that goes. But I think more importantly, considering that we're fighting at the wrong end of the table, it's another rival that's now incredibly strengthened and taken above us in terms of financial power. We're in that group of clubs, when, especially for transfer targets, where we're looking around the 15, 20 million, if that. And and now there's another team that has more financial pull than us because a few years ago, we were battling Leicester for the same targets. They were getting them, uh, James Madison being one. Uh, we were close to signing him and then uh, Leicester came in. And now Newcastle are basically are going to be another one. Basically, we're... We've gone further down the pecking order at the ta- at the Premier League table, and we're sort of left with the scraps that other teams don't consider good enough for them. Mm. And Craig, does it feel like the bubble's going to burst when it comes to these kind of owners taking over these clubs? Because it feels like the financial aspect is going to come to a point where it's unsustainable, and you know, clubs like Southampton obviously are trying to compete, but they're nowhere near the same level. And I think there's also the argument in the Bundesliga right now where should they scrap that 50 plus one rule, for example, just to allow teams to compete. But listening to the German uh, podcast, the Bundesliga Diary, they've been talking about the fact that you could raise that cap off, but that still doesn't make it easy for the types of clubs like Greta Furth because the likes of Bayern Munich will just get someone that's richer to plough more money into that club. So realistically, the likes of Greta Furth will never be on the same stage as like a Bayern Munich right now, for example. So yeah, at some point this has got to give, but yeah, I mean, who's there to control it? I don't know who's right team or, you know, leagues or authorities that should be really keeping an eye on this. But yeah, does the EPL have something to control this matter, I suppose. Well, they, they should do. They, we have the owners and directors testing. It should be, you know, you're a responsible person to do so. I, I think when it happened with Abramovich and Chelsea, the Premier League almost opened Pandora's box then and said, mm. you know, if, if one can do it, you're very, very, it's going to be very, very difficult then to say it's okay for you, but not not for us. So I think they've, they've let the cat out of the bag a little bit. With the Premier League, I think you're going to be in a position in 50 years' time where all 20 clubs are essentially just toys of billionaires around the world that's going to get to that stage. And gone are the days where you know local man turned good, um, local businessman owns his club and mm. you know they get promoted and that's great. That's that's absolutely gone now. That's absolutely gone. And it's a real shame and I hope that Germany don't break the 50 plus one rule because it's seen as a bit of a beacon of, of you know fan mm. involvement and fan fan run clubs. And the boys are absolutely right and they've they've both hit the nail on the head. The Premier League clubs are not being obstructive for any sort of moral stance or anything like that. What they are they're doing is they're being deliberately obstructive for a competition and reasons. So you've already got the big six and there's only four Champions League places. Now six doesn't go into four already. Seven definitely doesn't go into four. Now what Arsenal and Liverpool and Man United um, Spurs are saying is we don't want another competitor to be challenging for the top four. They don't want Aston Villa and Brighton and the likes don't want another club challenging for Europe. And, and Tom's absolutely right. You look at clubs at the beginning of the season, you'd be looking at the clubs that come up. You're looking at Newcastle, Burnley, uh, Crystal Palace, Southampton. All these clubs are looking for three worst clubs that are around them to go down. And now all of a sudden you're thinking, well, that's one less club to get dragged into relegation battle. And you're instantly part of a smaller group that are potentially going to go down. So you can absolutely see why 
they're doing it, but um, before anyone gets excited, it's not the same sort of moral stance. It's purely competition looking after themselves. Interesting. So we'll move on, and I thought we'd uh, go into the Champions League. Uh, we were treated to a, a good few games over the last few days. Um, so I thought we'd start off, though, with Craig, with yourself. Um, you were watching the Ajax versus Dortmund match. Um, Ajax comprehensively beating Dortmund 4-0. Um, Dortmund seemed to have that old age problem of, you know, defenders defending, I suppose, to an extent. Um, we'll, but, never, we'll never catch on. Yeah, they never seem to catch on to that. Um, but Craig, I wanted to get your thoughts on the Ajax team as well in particular, because it seems like they're kind of doing something really magical at the moment. Obviously, a few weeks ago, we talked about their league presence and what they've been doing down there. But there's a number of good players that potentially, you know, Man United could do with right now. You talked about a package as well that could be considered for Man United. Um, but yeah, just generally, what about this Ajax team? What, what's your thoughts on them? I was really impressed. It's the first time I've watched 90 minutes of Ajax for, for a while, actually. And I thought Dortmund can't defend. Uh, Dortmund can't defend and Ajax are really good. So sat down and watched that. I was expecting a bit of a, a competitive game, but Ajax were just superb. Dortmund were okay for the first eight minutes. Ajax cut them open once. Anthony missed a one-on-one. A -on -one. And then after that, it was just, it was literally all Ajax for the rest of the game. Um, and this Ajax side... Are, I'm going to say it now, are, are dark horses to get to, I would say, the semi-finals of this competition. They remind me very, very much of the team that did it three years ago. Uh, with the mm. Delict, De Jong, Van der Beek team. It looks as if they've done that Ajax thing where they've sold their three, four biggest assets, just replaced them with you know, like-for-like -like superstars. And the two centre-halves, two boys to look out for, a guy called Timber, 20 years old, and a guy called Martin is 23. They marked Erling Haaland out of the game for, for 90 minutes. And I've never seen two centre-halves control him like that. And he didn't get a sniff. And it was really great because the, the Amsterdam crowd, every time Haaland missed, touched the ball or got beaten for a header, they were roaring like they just won a corner or, or a 50-50 tackle. It was superb. Um, but that Ajax team are, are, are definitely one for watching. They were good. And we've seen that they're running a mock in, in the Eredivisie. But up against, you know, a, a decent attacking um, Dortmund mm. side, they kept them all really quiet. They were they were absolutely superb. And Andy, we've been talking about Anthony as well for a number of like pods in the past. Um, yeah, it just seems to get stronger and stronger as games go by. Yeah, I think they've. Uh, I think Anthony will be the next, obviously, multi-million pound move. But I think one thing I like about Ajax is that they've um, they've got a good exp few experienced heads in there as well. Because uh, he bought uh, Daily Blind Black. Back from United, mm. um, and to be perfectly blunt, probably shouldn't have sold him in hindsight because um, you know he's basically a yard of pace um, from being one of the best midfielders slash defenders knocking about. He's versatile. His passing range is all he very rarely misplaces a pass. He's got really good technique, um, and also Duskin Tadic as well. Um, obviously, mm. Southampton lad. Um, again, he's uh, having you know very very extended Indian summer to his <laughs> career. Um, he just seems to be five of being the main man and um, yeah, really good from set pieces. You know, as showed the other night as well. And um, I think it's having those experienced heads to guide the younger players. Um, I think you know, Lissandra Martinez. I think he'll be in um, another one who will get a big move as a defender. As a defender. So yeah, uh, they just keep doing it, but. It's all what we do behind the scenes. They've got a coach mm. who has a defined way of playing football, a defined style. 
in Marco over Mars and um, in Edwin van der Sar. They've got an established football-minded le- leadership running that club. Uh, so from back, you know, from front to back, they're a very well-run club, and that ultimately, you know, shows in what come you know, shows on the pitch. Ultimately, they are like a you know a model club in my view. Definitely. I don't know what they've done to Sebastian Haller, but he's played like the guy that West Ham. <laughs> he's played like the guy that West Ham thought they were getting. He he bullied Matt Hummels, and Matt Hummels yeah. is done. If you if you see some of the goals, he's gone. Um, he's been um, done for a couple of years, though, hasn't he? They, yeah, they, so he bullied Matt Hummels. They brought on Emery Chan to to almost yeah. double Mark Haller, and he bullied them both for his goal in, in there. Just I don't know what they're feeding them over there, but he's been absolutely <laughs> superb this season. Definitely something in the water. I was going to kind of bring on the topic of Seb Haller and the fact that he's just on magical form. I know it's Eredivisie and obviously the early stages, I think, against Sporting Lisbon where he scored that hat-trick as well. Just incredible. I mean, yeah, it seems like a different Haller. Um, if we bring in to also the game of Inter versus Sheriff, uh, we love the Sheriff here on this podcast, but it didn't turn out to be a game that they wanted to remember. They lost 3-1 to Inter. Impressive Inter performance, I have to say, but Sheriff did very well. And um, I don't know if you guys saw Seb Tell's, um fantastic free kick, but it was a fantastic equaliser. Um, but um, Andy, if we start off with yourself, um, do you still have hopes of Sheriff maybe progressing out of this group? No, it's possible, isn't it? Um, it's you know, like I said, it's basically a squad full of um, second or third rate Brazilians, <laughs> which uh, is basically what happens when you have no restrictions on who you can sign uh, and things and all that kind of stuff. But um, no, I think I remember like Apuan Nicosia a few years back getting to like the quarterfinals. Yeah. And was, on a similar kind of budget with similar third-rate Brazilians knocking about. So it's not beyond possibility at all. And Tom, I thought we'd talk about PSG versus Leipzig. Um, obviously, PSG are everyone's favourite worst team, shall we say. Um, but yeah, Messi came to the rescue, scoring two important goals to secure the win. Um, I thought Leipzig were a bit unlucky here and Kunku. Um being really the talisman for Leipzig at the moment. And an interesting stat from our previous podcast guest, Zach Lowey, tweeted, Paris Saint-Germain had registered 27 shots in the Champions League and conceded with 52 shots so far um, on goal. Um, But yeah, one of those shots that obviously PSG have registered in the Champions League was Mbappe's penalty, which I think is floating over Manchester right now. Um, (laughs) But yeah, what what did you make of PSG? I know a very difficult topic in that sense, um, but yeah, on the pod, it just feels like if Pochettino doesn't win the Champions League, then potentially he might get sacked this season. What's your thoughts on him? Well, to be honest, when you are when you have a front three of Neymar, Mbappe, and Messi, if you're not even getting if you're not getting close to getting into the final, then it's considered a failure. To be honest, I don't think many teams will ever have quite that combination. I did I did enjoy Leipzig's. Um, tweet uh before the game where i think uh, goal.com put uh, that neymar was out injured and they said right that's cool that's that's only mbappe and messi to deal with instead so uh <laughs> that's fine we've got it we've got it i mean messi i thought it, it's it's weird it's when he moved to psg it was almost like this should be the biggest um the biggest news story in football but i just didn't care i just thought you've gone you've 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 taken the easy route to be honest um, 
he did. It took him a while to sort of get going, but ever since that uh, that goal against Manchester City in the previous round of fixtures, he's sort of come to life. Um, and we all know how brilliant a player he is. As and obviously, it's I, I like seeing Pochettino succeed. Former Saints man. Uh, it's weird to have Pochettino in charge of PSG and Kuman in charge of Barcelona and four, <laughs> two former Saints managers uh, at that level. But I I really rate what Poch does. He turned us from uh, a, a, a bang average Premier League outfit that had just come up into one that can genuinely compete. Um, so we'll always be forever grateful for that. And I want to see him do well. At, but yeah, if he doesn't win anything with the team that he's currently got for PSG, then he's doing something majorly wrong. Mm. And Craig, I'll turn to you first because I know Andy will go off on one, but Man United three versus Atalanta's <laughs> two goals. Um, it was a game of two halves, as they said. Um, but yeah, I think it was helped by the fact that Di Morel had to go off injured in that second half. Um, but yeah, what did you make of that performance? Because I know on our WhatsApp group, we were kind of, you know, just calling out every mistake for that first goal. And it just seems to be like, Either Ollie's not training them or coaching them to deal with these situations, or it's the players that are to blame. And I'm sure we'll go into detail about Ollie in a minute. But yeah, what did you make of that performance to start off with? Well, you're, you're right in saying it was a game of two halves. So I have to take both halves in isolation. So the first half was an, an absolute aberration. I know Andy won't mind me saying that. The, the, no structure or, or real game plan, no collective press. And when they, I saw that they were lining up a 4-2-4. I didn't think they would actually play 4-2-4 in the Champions League, but they did. And McTominay and Fred are both on the side to give you some sort of defensive solidity and protect the back four. But if they're the only two who are protecting the back four, because none of the front four were coming back to help out, they were just so exposed with mm. Atalanta's wing-backs. You saw that for the first goal. Lindelof gets pulled out of position, really straightforward. Shaw gets in, pulled into that space, and there's the overlap, and it's, and it's in. Uh, and the second goal from a corner. I mean, Luke Shaw is the only guy I know who's six foot tall standing, but when he jumps, he's four foot five. He's just so bad in the air. It's I just couldn't believe that from from that first goal. So absolutely terrible. And you're thinking you're feeling the worst for this Man United team because if he if he continued the second half in that vein, it could have been three or four really. But then second half, I didn't see any particular tactical changes, but you could tell mm. from the first fifteen seconds there. Manchester United went up three or four gears in terms of intensity. I think it was important to get the first goal as early as they did in the, the second half, and that finish from Rashford was just sublime. Just, just I've seen we've watched Terry on we do that for years in the Premier League when it was Arsenal that really, really tight inside the far post finish. I thought it was superb. And then you know get get the equaliser, and then I didn't put any money on it, but you're sitting here thinking I've seen this movie before. I know what's going to happen. I know they're going to win three two, and I, do you know what? I know who's going to score the goal as well. And then, as, you know, as sure as, as sure as shit, Ronaldo turns up and scores scores the third. So overall, good result for Manchester United um, in terms of they, they needed that for the Champions League group. Um, their second performance was encouraging, and I've got mm. no problem with Man United fans celebrating that win because it's a it's a huge win. But just it does paper over a lot of cracks, and I don't think it's too long. Potentially Sunday afternoon. We'll, the Oli Out Brigade will be back out in force because I, I don't think that Atalanta result really tells anything new about Man United and it doesn't tell me that they're going to go from here and, and go on a run of games and that something's going to change. I think they just had an inspired performance behind a really supportive crowd. Um, but I, still, the Oli for me, Oli for me is uh, living on borrowed time, I think. 
Mm. Let's move on to you then, Andy. Um, obviously, I saw Paul Scholes and Gary Neville kind of criticising the team as opposed to Solskjaer. Um, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on that. But yeah, as Craig alluded to, is this performance just really papering over the cracks that we've been seeing for the last few games, in particular that Leicester result as well? Yeah, it's, I mean, the performance, um, we've been putting in the same kind of performances for a good couple of months. Um, the only difference really has the ability of the opposition to take their chances or not take their chances in some cases. And I think one thing that has worked to United's favour is that um, David De Gea has seen to have recaptured his form from you know three, four years ago uh, because he's been, although the goals against Tally doesn't really do it justice, he's been brilliant this season. Um, just before like, the second goal, there was a double save that he made last mm. night, which really, you know, I felt that was a turning point. Um, but yeah, I think he is papering over cracks. And I think I can see why people are getting a little bit angry at that. You know, people like Gary Neville were refusing to sort of, you know, commit to saying whether the manager is good enough. Like, I get not wanting to call somebody be sacked because I think it's quite unedifying and yeah people speculate about that sort of stuff probably quite a lot um but it's he's well they would have been there sort of nearly three years and you would like to think that in that period of time there'd have been an evolution in the style of play um and a team you know before you could sort of say he wasn't really given the personnel that he wanted but uh, this is Solskjaer's team now um, you know, you've got the likes of Ronaldo, you've got Rafa, obviously wasn't there, it was injured, but you've got Rafael Varane, you've got Jadon Sancho, you've got Donny van der Beek, who he refuses to use, no matter how desperate the circumstances. You know, he's got uh, his own squad of players now. Um, mm. And I think, yeah, I think I probably come to the realisation of what Craig said probably a few weeks back was that, He's done an okay job, but he's hit his ceiling. Um, and I think as a fan, you know, uh, I can't get on board with people on Twitter who literally say they want their team to lose games. Like, if you're, if you, I don't care if you call yourself a United fan, if you want your team to lose a match just to get somebody sacked, then you're not a fan. Uh, it's as simple as that. And, you know, no matter the impact of it, you want to win every single game that you go out and play. Uh, but I think. I think a lot of people do realise now, even the match-going fans, that in order for the team to go from being top four to winning trophies, it's going to be likely that somebody else is going to have to come in and um, take that next step. Uh, but, you know, whoever does come in will leave a group of really, really good players there. I mean, to be honest mm. with you, I think where a good coach and a better coach and a defensive midfielder from having a title challenges squad... We're not that the squad is not that far away at all. Yeah, um, I saw I saw a really good tweet this week that said this Manchester United squad can win the Premier League, but this Manchester United manager can't. And I think that sums up perfectly what you're saying there. It's just they're not that far away. They're really, really not. But they just need someone to come in, gel that together, put in a style of play, and I think you know they really could be there thereabouts. Yeah. And Tom, do you kind of agree with this sentiment? Because I appreciate from your point of view. 
is it a mentality thing with Man United fans because they're used to success and maybe not so akin to giving maybe a manager time to kind of progress? Or is it just the fact that, you know, Solskjaer has had a lot of time and he's brought in the players that he wanted. Now is the time to deliver. Yeah, I think with this group of players, he needs to be doing a lot better. Uh, and I think I agree with the sentiment that they are uh, the right man and a good defensive midfielder away from being title challengers. I've been saying on our pod for quite some time that if they brought in someone like Wilfred Ndidi or even like someone like Tillemans in, then that would be them sorted. I think Manchester United fans are just so used to them being such a scary outfit. Teams are not scared of Man United anymore. Um, and... You know, in years and years ago, it used to be a case of let's turn up and see if we can only concede three or four and we'll consider that a good result. Teams will attack Man United. They know that they can get behind them. They know that they can score goals. And, you know, results like Leicester scoring four, that just didn't used to happen. And teams have just gone through that barrier now. And I think that Solskjaer, in, I'm, I'm surprised it's that long because I know he started ridiculously well and he was at the wheel and then it's like the wheels came off and then they seem to get back on again uh, for the group of players that he has, he should be doing better. And I think if a, if the right manager comes in, he can turn, they they've got the squad to be that really, really terrifying side again. I mean, they've got Ronaldo up front and he doesn't even need to move that much. And he's still causing teams mm. loads and loads of problems. So they're the right man away from ta- challenging for the title. Um, but at the moment it just doesn't seem to be clicking. And Adam, who would you who would you recommend then if, if Ollie goes, say they get Liverpool put three or four past them on Sunday and they could and mm. Ollie goes then. So what do you think? I mean, looking at Poch isn't particularly secure at PSG, would you still take Poch? I mean, who who do you think's best placed to to take this manager forward? Well, I was gonna put that question to Andy in the sense of there's been a lot made of there's not the right manager out there right now, but Surely, if you're like any club that looks to buy a player, you look to buy a manager, surely. And for me, someone like Eric Den Haag would be a really great manager to bring in right now based on the fact that he is clearly building something at Ajax. He's done it over a number of seasons. And you know what? He feels like a good fit. Another alternative, this might be a bit left field here, but Simeone at uh, Atletico, I think he would uh, definitely ruffle a few feathers. I mean, with his style, um, he's just all about gung-ho. I think he'd bring in the attitude aspect to Man United, definitely about, you know, just constantly trying to chase the ball, which I think to an extent Man United have been lacking. I think, Andy, you called out the fact that you know, you've got a lot of attacking players, but they seem to have forgotten how to press. And it's only like when you bring in Cavani onto the pitch that you seem to progress with that kind of push in that respect. Um, but I'd be curious from Andy's point of view. Um, I appreciate there's not maybe the um, calibre of managers because you don't like Conte, I think, um, as a general rule of thumb because you feel like he'd need more was, money, right? Yeah, Steve Bruce is out of work. <laughs> I'd rather just take the job myself to be honest <laughs> a thousand managing a thousand games he's got the experience yeah <laughs> I've seen that one a few times um, I mean I was I was thinking about the whole contact thing and I think um, I was looking at his stats at into the thought actually maybe I'm just being a little bit snooty because of his time at Chelsea and stuff but um, you know they ultimately scored a bucket to the goals last season at Inter they played there's some good football. And I think, you know, football 
as much as we all have this, especially at United, we have this idealistic view that we'll have a manager that will be there for like six, seven, eight years and do like a proper dynasty, you know, like Fergie did at United and what Klopp is pretty much doing at Liverpool. And But ultimately, football doesn't work that way. So I think, and when you think in that mindset, you go, actually, is there anything wrong with Conte coming in for a couple of years, winning a Premier League title? And then, so what if he falls out with the ball? Just get somebody else in. So I'm a bit more open to it than perhaps would have been a few weeks back. I think stylistically, and in terms of... Um, I suppose the buzzwords of some people, culture, I think bringing in Ten Hag, but not just him, the whole kit and caboodle with them from Ajax to mm. United, because they have very similar principles, you know, they like, they have, you know, Man- Manchester have had a, match, a youth player in the match day squad since the 50s, every single match day. Uh, they do like to promote from within, uh, a bit like Ajax do, you know, with a, f- a few sprinkling of stars either way. And I think if you bring in Van der Sar as a chief exec, you bring in Ten Hag as a coach and have a proper top to bottom, um, you know, football operation, that would be um that present huge dividends i don't think sedan i think what john said i don't think sedan would be Mm. the best idea because for me like he benefited from having probably one of the best midfield trios you can get in football and ronaldo is absolute peak Uh, i don't necessarily think he was the best tactically to be perfectly honest um, and what Manchester United need is somebody who can get more out of the existing group of players and have a defined way of playing. So I think with that in mind, it's all like Ten Hag or Conte, uh, maybe Pochettino. I think he was touted for the job before he went to PSG because people were having this discussion a year ago when United were going for a bit of a dodgy patch of form. Um, but yeah, it's um, I'm quite open-minded at this point. But, um, yeah, I think if I was, I'll probably say Ten Hag, you know, all Conte is a bit of a turnaround, but that's just my own internal thoughts <laughs> changing <laughs> over a period of time. What about you, Craig? What's your thoughts? Yeah, I think of everyone that's out there, um, potentially, <clears throat> excuse me, Ten Hag Ten Hag's the one for me. He's been at Ajax for some time now. He's he's due a move. Um, I'd love to see him in the Premier League and he'd probably be the one for me to install a style of play um, it's also work ethic and get Manchester United back. I think he's there. But equally, I mean, Conte, if he can come in and you know turn that inter team into what they did last year, he could do easily do the same with Manchester United. So yeah, I, either or would be would be fun. But I think Ten Hag in terms of longevity would probably be mm. a better shot. Tom, let's talk about your beloved Southampton. Um, I have to admit that Southampton was a team that I flouted as being potentially a relegation favourite. And this was down to the fact that at the time, Danny Ings had just been sold to Villa and there was murmurs of Ward-Prowse following him. But Hassan Hootel has been quite shrewd with some of the signings this season. Uh, we talked off-air about Livermento and uh, Mohamed Salisu, who is proving to be a very good addition, even though that was from last season. And Armando Broja is also starting to come out quite well. Unsure about the likes of El Hanusi, as you mentioned, with that goal against Newcastle and uh, Adam Armstrong. Um, but yeah, let's get your thoughts on Southampton generally. How have you approached this season compared to the last few? Uh, this season has been a bit different because it's almost been a mini overhaul of the squad. Obviously, losing Danny Ings was 
was very much a shock in terms of the way that it happened. I was actually doing mm. um, commentary, commentary of uh, the Saints against Levante friendly, and suddenly this news just came up in the press box that Danny Ings had signed for Villa, and it was a very, it was a really weird. It was a very subdued um, Twitter post that Villa just put out. There was no warning whatsoever, even. Even uh, my boss at, at, at the BBC, I, went, I walked over and I just showed him my phone and he just goes, hang on, what? And it was a case of like, no one knew. And then there was, it was before kickoff and there was just this hush around St. Mary's. No one really cared about the friendly that, that, that evening mm. because everyone was just thinking, hang on, you've just sold our, our main goal threat. And obviously we've got rid of Vestergaard, uh, Bertrand as well. So I approached this season with more of a case of let's just see how we how we do. I think a lot of people, and quite rightly so, tipped us for relegation. I don't think we're going to be in much trouble come the end of the season, but I don't think we're going to pull up any trees either. We've made some interesting signings. Uh, I had to admit, I knew nothing about Livramento before he joined, but I know now he's going to he's going to fund our next transfer window. <laughs> the, the amount of cash that we're going to get for him. It's a very big release clause, a uh, very big buyback clause, that's for sure. Um, much more than a lot was saying in the papers. But um, it's it's a weird one because Armstrong brought him from the championship, real goal threat. Uh, but Danny Ings has left very big shoes to fill. Um, he's got he got the one goal on the opening day of the season. Perfect start before the capitulation that we've been so used to this year, especially. Uh, but it's been a difficult start. But I think um, I think with the fixtures that we've got now, we can start pulling away from the relegation zone. I'd be interested, actually, to understand where you rate Hassan Hootel amongst all of the managers you've had in your time. Because I remember the likes of Nigel Adkins, as you rightly called before. Obviously, we had Poch move across. And then, obviously, you've mentioned about Kuman. So, um, yeah, Hassan Hootel, I... I I kind of rate, but I feel like the results of those nine nils have kind of made me tarnished his reputation a bit. Um, we knew a lot about him from his Salzburg days, but yeah. Do you think just the fact that he's been given some time at Southampton under the circumstances of the board as well and what's going on in the background of Southampton's kind of helped him in the respect of he's managed to keep you up with limited funds and yeah, you're kind of playing good football at times as well, aren't you? It's a strange one with Hasan Hootel. There's obviously shown a major, uh, a really strong bond between him and uh, the, the board in terms of the running of the club because it's amazing that a manager can survive 1-9-0, let alone 2, um, in consecutive seasons as well. It's Hasan Hootel, it's a strange one because we when we play well, we can beat anybody, as was shown with that run to the summit of the Premier League last season. But also, we can play really, really badly, as was shown by the other half <laughs> of last season, where we struggled to win a single game and it was just atrocious. Um, but I, I mean, on on our pod with um, with Callum, we did an episode um, a, a, a few weeks back, saying finally, is it time for Ralph to go? because that was after we just lost to Wolves. And it's been a very much a running theme that when we get these winnable games at home against teams that play a low block, we just can't break them down. And it's really frustrating uh, because we've gone from a team... We we could score last season. This season, it's a bit of a struggle. And it's a case of he's been here for three years. 
we were expecting there to be some sort of revolution. What has happened is a stubbornness to play anything other than the high press, a, um, a stubbornness to not adapt. He's made some very weird substitutions. You're chasing a goal against Wolves and you bring on 34-year-old Shane Long who hasn't scored for several decades. <laughs> it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a weird one. But credit where credit's due, this season... In terms, just for context, last season conceded 64 goals. It was one of the worst in the league, if not the worst. This season, we've shored up defensively. We've done so much better. In the same eight fixtures last season that we've had this season, we conceded 19 goals. This season, we've only conceded 10 from them. And including clean sheets against Manchester City, against West Ham, who were free scoring at the time, uh, against Leeds. Yes, I know they were... They're missing their best players, but you can only beat what's in front of you. And only conceding one against Man United, who had just put five past Leeds themselves. So we have improved a lot defensively. We just can't score down the other end easily. Mm. I mean, against Leeds, it took a very, I think, what's on FIFA, it's called a sweaty goal to actually get the ball, <laughs> about, get the ball in the back of the net. You needed an open net for us to finally score. I mean, apart from that chance, we still didn't look like scoring against a terrible lead side. Um, we're playing against, we've got some better fixtures. See how we do. Uh, I'm, I, I like Ralph. As a person, I really like him as our manager. He's a very amenable mm. person. Uh, he, he shows a genuine, um, he, he genuinely cares about the club and wants to do well. I mean, the guy, burst into tears after he beat Liverpool last season. I mean, a lot of people said that was very strange. I think looking back, it is a bit weird, but at the same time, personal circumstances, uh, I think one of his relatives had just got over from COVID. So obviously there was a lot of stress at the time and I know he got taken the mick out of it. And I can understand why, but he's a, he's a guy that Saints, I think he's one of those managers that you really, really, really want to succeed. And when he fails, it's a case of Saints fans going, oh, please, Ralph, we don't want to get rid of you. You're such a lovely guy. We want you to do really, really well. Um, mm. Give him a bit more time, see how he does. I think I think we'll be fine this season. Well, I'm going to give you one of our listeners' questions below. So from John Anderson, he's a Brentford fan as well, as you can see by his question. But he's asking you, do you see Brentford in a similar position to Saints, apart from shirts, selling and making money and buying players to develop and actually stay in the Premier League? Yeah, I think the way that Brentford have started the season, I think they're going to be fine. I know that these newly promoted sides can start well, then tail off towards the end of the, end of the season. It'll be interesting to see how they do over the Christmas period. But they have a really, really interesting um, money ball way of do, way of running things. Um, it worked. It it's the same style as uh, Micheland in in Denmark, mm. and that's done wonders for them. And it's interesting, apart from Tony, they don't really have standout players, but they have players that really fit their system. They don't buy big names. They buy players that they have scouted for ages that specifically fit that role. And I was watching one of their games, I think it was last season in the FA Cup. They played a second string side against a Premier League team. It might have been Leicester and they still played exactly the same football. And I think there's a lot of similarities there with Saints in terms of you want to buy players that fit that system well so that, I mean, there's a playbook that goes throughout the club at Saints uh, that Ralph has developed where we want every single team from the under eights to the first team to play the exact same way 
so that they can come seamlessly up through the academy. Unfortunately, the academy has been really shit for the last year, and I think we've only <laughs> just won our first game in 24 or something like that. Um, so not the not the greatest endorsement for the playbook, that's for sure. But I think it's a similar style. I can see Brentford staying up. Uh, they they run mm. well. Um, we'll have to maybe maybe it's a question to revisit after the Christmas period because that is sort of for the newly promoted sides that is the, very much the, the make or break period of the season. Mm. And before I let the guys kind of ask their questions about Southampton, um, just wanted to ask a bit of background around the ownership at Southampton because the Libras obviously were kind of building something at Southampton. Unfortunately, the owner did then suddenly pass away and obviously was left with the daughter, if I remember rightly. And then you've had this Chinese consortium kind of come in and it doesn't seem like from the outside that they've put a lot of money into the club. I remember during the figures that were quoted around Premier League clubs struggling during COVID, Southampton were quite high and struggling financially with this. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to get or give the listeners kind of some understanding around what's happening from the backgrounds, uh, backgrounds sort of outset, I suppose. How bad or how good is this situation at Southampton? Is it a case that you need further funds to really sustain the Premier League at the moment? Or is it a case of there is money, but they're being kind of maybe financially stringent in that respect? It's at the moment it we have to sell to buy players. Um, we wouldn't have gone on the spending spree we did this summer if we hadn't sold Danny Ings and Vestergaard for a combined total of around fifty million. Um, that it's very much a case of we need to generate our own funds. The owner, I, I understand the way the owner wants to do it in terms of he wants us to become sustainable, sort of can survive on our own without interjection from him. And I think. A, a, a pro of that is he hasn't interfered with the club in terms of people were worried about asset stripping. Um, that's not happened at all. He's very hands off. I suppose a, a con of that is that in the Premier League, it doesn't, especially with the Newcastle takeover, it seems that sustainability um, buying, it's, um, selling to buy is not the way forward at the moment. As nice as you want to take the moral high ground of that, yeah, we generate our own funds. We're really well run financially. We're okay uh, in terms of just keeping on going. Unfortunately, that means a lot of the time you're staying still. And in the Premier League, the staying still gets you relegated uh, quite quickly mm. because every team that comes up, are spend, they're spending money. Um, even, you know, teams that were below us a couple of seasons ago. I mean, Aston Villa is a prime example, just about stayed up. I don't buy, I still don't buy the fact that they only stayed up because of goal line technology not working. But I mean, prime, prime example of them, we finished comfortably above them, beat them fair and square, beat them really, really well. They've taken our best striker after one year since then. And we're heavily linked to signing our captain. Um, that's just how what staying still does to you. The teams overtake you, even Brighton. They've invested well. They've invested uh, very well. And they've got a very good style of football. And I really rate Graham Potter. I think fa fans are really disappointed with the owner because we had such a good regime before. When Marcus Lieber took us over, obviously, we were on our knees. We were day days away from mm. not existing as a club. And he brought with him Nicola Cortese, who is probably one of the most ruthless men you could ever come across in terms of he 
pissed a lot of people off, but he got Saints believing that they could genuinely qualify for the Champions League. And I mean, from the takeover, we were down on in League One, minus 10. And within three years, we were in the Premier League again, um, spending, we spent 15 million quid, which at the time, I think it was in 2014 at the time, that wasn't actually um, a small amount of money. 50 million quid mm. now doesn't get you the player that you think that you're getting. But I mean, we, we spent that on Danny Osvaldo, who turned out to be an absolute <laughs> nutcase. Um, <laughs> oh, had, him. He was funny. But at the time, before we knew, I mean, no one knew at the time what was going to happen and the fact that he was basically just, he liked basically being Jack Sparrow in fancy dress and playing up front on his own on <laughs> terms. And then having a celebration where he machine gunned the fans. He was a very strange character. But at the time, people were thinking, hang on, Southampton have just got promoted and they've signed Roma's first choice striker. So we obviously were we were making real inroads. Uh, obviously, there was the summer that everyone everyone left. But then we spent that 100 million or so on Sadio Mane, Dusan Tadic, Graziano Pella, who is a player that I st- love to bits and I wish that we still had him just because he looks fantastic and uh, (laughs) (laughs) just because he looks I mean come on he's 90 minutes and not a single hair is out of place he's the best manicured man I've ever seen on a football pitch and he's a very he was a very good player the only problem with that was Cortese was spending like crazy and um Lever's daughter had to take control because we were basically spending our way into going straight back to um administration so she took control. Cortese had to go. And I think she, she still has a stake because obviously it's her father's club and there's a sentimental value. Um, so she, I think she'll always have, a, for a long time, she'll have a portion of control. Uh, but I think it's just a case of we, we were looking like genuinely contending for the top four. And since then, the new owners, lack of investment. And with and I mean, we've seen the consequences of that. We're now relegation candidates for the last five years in a row. I've mm. gone on a bit there, but there you go. There's no, the life story of the last 10 years. Yeah. Guys, did you have any questions for Tom? I was going to say, it's more of an observation of anything else, because I think what your what Southampton experience with the Chinese owners is to say what's happening as Inter as well, is that although they're worth an awful lot of money, um, they're very much... The way that they spend money is still heavily influenced politically by the Chinese government because Mm. I think part of the issues that the Chinese government have is the amount of money that's going out of the country. Mm. So whereas a few years ago it was all about splashing fees left, right and centre to get X, Y and Z player, um, it does seem to be, I think that's the difficulty, is that when you have... um, an ownership group which um, does have heavy is influenced politically and at a higher level than just yeah you know, yeah you know, a government level it does cause us to have a negative impact because let's be honest like if you look at the um, the way that PSG City run all all that's got to happen is they turn around one day and gone actually football is not a wise investment for us anymore we're not doing it anymore and then it just go. Yeah, at least with Southampton is that they are they are being operated in a very sensible, sustainable way. Uh, so although I guess maybe there isn't that ambition to push into the European places and that kind of stuff, or there isn't the resource to do it, um, at least it won't ever go bust. So I think that's a positive in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, I, th- I think financially we're well looked after and 
I think yet what fan what fans don't like is just as you said that sort of it seems to be a lack of ambition and I mean as I said before at the moment standing still and being sustainable is not the way forward in the current model of the Premier League with so many other teams spending so much I think he was we were bought at the time that uh, you know the the Chinese government were happy for the the cash to be splashed as it were and then very shortly after they reversed that and it was a case of this I think well I mean it's my own uh, my own personal opinion but I think the guy just sort of realized okay maybe getting a football club wasn't the best idea um <laughs> because now we've been on the market for quite some time and but what I just on the subject of maybe a change in ownership what I've we had the, a fans forum where the CEO said we could sell the club tomorrow but it wouldn't be to a person that you'd like to be in control of the club. And that's why I still think that we're in very safe hands because we've got the owner, but Martin Simmons is has control of the, the goings on in that sense. And they have the club's best interests at heart. If we're gonna sell if we're gonna sell, it's gonna have to be to the right person. They they've had low apparently they've had loads of offers for the club, but not from people that we'd want to we'd want to mm. sell them. And I think just it would be irresponsible. So I'm happy in that when we do finally get sold, because I think it is a very much a case of a, of a when, not an if, um, it will be to the right person to take us forward. Until that time, we've just got to keep doing what we're doing and trying to stay in the Premier League because as much as fans have said, oh, I really enjoyed the Championship. I really enjoyed League One. We had a great time. <laughs> and the, I'm one of those. I love the seasons in League One. We beat everybody. It was fantastic. <laughs> we were... We're, we were playing against Carlisle with Adam Lallana and Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain on the wings. It was carnage. It was brilliant. Um, but uh, if it would be a disaster to go out of the Premier League in the current mm. climate. I agree. Right, Craig, I thought we'd uh, briefly talk about Bayern. Uh, last week, uh, they played Leverkusen in the top two clash and won quite handsomely 5-1 and it was quite an easy result in the Champions League they also beat Benfica 4-0 away and uh, Lewandowski has now scored eight, or actually 19 goals sorry in 17 games for both club and country now um, but generally that Bayern squad looks quite frightening but we have to say beyond that first 11 they kind of do lack that quality as backups right now so I suppose the big question is, outside of Bayern, do we see anyone really challenging in the Bundesliga? And uh, do you fancy maybe Bayern for the Champions League this year? Uh, that's the first question. First, no one will get anywhere near Bayern Munich in the Bundesliga. If you look at the table now, Dortmund are close, but Dortmund really are making quite hard work of it. Mm. They are scraping wins last minute, conceding quite a few goals. I think they conceded two goals at Mainz, which is nothing to, to write home about. So, although it looks at first glance like it's quite a decent title race, Dortmund are having to work really, really hard in Bayern Munich, you know, as we've seen, are just blowing teams away. Um, so eventually that class will show. Um, Dortmund will eventually start dropping points because their luck will, will run out. And, and Bayern will go in and win that league by another eight to ten points comfortably, uh, I would I would say. And then in the Champions League, if they can keep those 13, 14 players fit, then on their night, they're a match for anyone. I mean, they only narrowly missed out um, last season. Um, Lewandowski was injured and if he was playing that game and Chubamotang had to start we might have been talking about a different result 
I still can't believe he's he's got the best agent in world football. That boy, yeah. he really has. You should have got his his agent, Andy. You'd have been you'd have been prime minister. Um, I mean, how so, his agent got him to move to Stoke was fantastic. What a what a move for him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, career highlights. Yeah, Dad, who did you play for? Oh well, Stoke. Um, so yeah, listen, if they can keep their players fit, they're they're a match for anyone. Um, and Nagelsmann just seems to have taken them to another level, a level that. Under Hansi Flick, they just looked looked superb, and he just seems to have taken them up on that level. And Leverkusen are are no mugs, and you know Bayern made them look very very silly. And yeah, bet, 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 they beat Benfica. Easy for me to say, four 0 But they had two disallowed goals that could have been you know another five or six there quite quite comfortably. So yeah, they'll walk the Bundesliga, and you know we'll see in the Champions League. They're right up there with on the night. They're up there with the Cities and the PSGs and the Chelsea's, Liverpools, etc. They are right up there. And Andy, just briefly, uh, Jamal Musiala also being a key player for them right now. Um, he looks like a player that could be there for years, a bit like Jude Bellingham at the moment. But yeah, I mean, it's scary to think about the talent that they've got in that squad. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy talent. Um, it's, I mean, like I said, apart from up front where they are, Lewandowski away from Chupamoteng and that will just all go to shit. But yeah, they added well over the summer. Obviously, Marcel Sabitzer, another very consistent Bundesliga performer over the past few years of RB Leipzig. Um, they've just got, you know, they have got depth in most positions on the pitch, apart from obviously in attacking. Um, yeah, if they keep if they keep Lewandowski fit along with the other players that they've got, I think they'll win the shit. I think they will be up there for winning the Champions League. Um, and as Craig said, they'll absolutely walk the league. Um, I know it's only a couple of points difference at the moment, but you know Dortmund will crumble um, at the first sign of a half decent attack. <laughs> so um, you know, I can imagine when Bayern next play Dortmund, uh, Lewandowski have a field day uh, with them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if you saw that first the goal that Lewandowski scored against Leverkusen, he just sort of flicked it from yeah. behind him. It was an absolutely disgusting finish. You know, you've got everybody talking about Mo Salah being the best in the world. And maybe it's my Man United bias refusing to admit <laughs> it. Uh, maybe there is an element of that. But I think for the past couple of years, to score the amount of goals that he has uh, for a not to have picked with Ballon d'Or, it's just absolutely criminal. Mm. I read a stat this week that in since season 2017-2018, he scored 196 goals in 200 games, which is fucking mental. It's absolutely, but almost a goal a game for 200 games. So yeah, in terms of a, an actual finisher, you won't get many better, but if he doesn't win the Ballon d'Or this year, then there's something seriously wrong, which we suspect it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely will be. <laughs> for, isn't it? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's well, going to go to Mason Mount, remember? <laughs> Tom, I don't think you'll ever see this on another podcast, but Andy is going to go through his new segment, which is called the Moldova National Division Update. Can't uh, say I have seen that. Oh, no. again, I thought I'd shock you right now with it before you disappeared from the pod. But yeah, Andy, you've been uh, really obsessed with Moldovan national football at the moment. So uh, oh, you know, I was on the lowdown. I was literally sat there on um, on Saturday trying to find YouTube highlights of the Moldovan National League. I eventually found it. So in case you're not already aware, it's only like a 19-game season and they only have eight. There's only eight teams in their league. Um, so, you know, obviously everyone's heard of FC Sheriff. They've got, you know, they're basically based in a bit of Moldova, which don't like 
expected to think they're actually Moldovan. Uh, so the Barcelona uh, that, of the Moldovan. Basically, yeah, that's a very good way of summing it up. Um, they've also got huge, um, quite huge by comparative standards, quite huge backing as well from a definitely not mafia-like organisation at all. <laughs> <laughs> so that's also fun. Um, you know, so basically, if you finish first, you get the Champions League qualifiers, the next two European positions. Unsurprising, um, unsurprisingly, Sheriff are doing quite well. They've played, played 10 games with eight of them. They are actually third in the league at the moment because Petro Club, um, Petro Club, uh, uh played 13 games, so three games in hand of a six point lead. Uh, but our new favorite team is called, um, uh, FC Forestry. So, um, just for context, they've played 14 games. They've won zero, drawn zero, <laughs> lost 14 of them. They've got a goal difference of minus 34. And just to add to their problems, they're on minus six points. Um, and as I was searching on the YouTube highlights, so over the weekend, they lost uh, 3-1. So they actually scored a goal. Uh, <laughs> I was watching it. And um, I think part of their solution is they cannot defend to save their lives. The pitch they were playing on, I think, would be no better than a National League side. Uh, they just, oh, their, their keeper is absolutely terrible. He's just flapping at every set piece. It was like proper Sunday League stuff. But they scored a penalty, which is really good. Obviously, Sheriff won uh, 4-0. Um, Milsami, which are second in the league, won 3 1 away at Dino Auto, so that was um, a good contest for them. And um, yeah, Petro Cup uh, lost uh, 1 1 0, but yeah, unfortunately, Fresh scored a goal, they lost 3 1, so they've got five games left to try and get themselves a win. Uh, and interpo- and need to win two games to finish on zero points for the season. So that is what is happening in Moldovan National Division. Andy, just out of curiosity, <laughs> is there a winter break in Moldova? I, you know what? I don't know, actually, uh, because it's only like 90 games. I assume so, because the game will... F- their fixes will finish in like the end of November, mm. so I assume it will break up for the winter. And start is it like is it like Sweden and Norway where they have to play through the summer because it gets so cold? Yeah, I think it is the case. It must like be, yeah. it must um, be quite close to it. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll move into the weekend preview. Um, Craig, if we start off with yourself, in terms of Rangers, what are we expecting this weekend? Because I did see that they drew one all with Hearts. So uh, wh- where are you expecting Rangers this week? So we are away to St Mirren on Sunday, 12 o'clock kickoff, which I hate because I always feel that Rangers start really slowly uh, in the early kickoffs. We're on Sky at, at 12 o'clock, which will be quite a difficult game. You'll remember me mourning that St Mirren put us out of the, the cup last year. So there are no mugs, mm. um, especially after quite a disappointing game last weekend because he did a, a 91st minute equaliser from a corner after the ever reliable Alan McGregor flapped at it. So uh, the rarest of things, Alan McGregor error. But yeah, hopefully back on, back to winning ways this weekend against St Mirren. So that'll be me uh, at Sunday lunchtime. Mm. Is there any other games that are taking your fancy at the moment? Um, there's quite a, quite a few this weekend. Most of them are on Sunday, um, to be honest. Roma versus Napoli and Inter versus Juventus um, on Sunday. Mm. So the Derby d'Italia, obviously, UV and, and Inter needs no introduction. That'll be a, a huge game, always is. Um, but Roma, so Roma beat last week against Juventus. Um, they got beat in the derby against Lazio earlier this season. And my biggest criticism again is that 
Roman never turn up for these big games. They never win against their rivals in the top four. So Jose Mourinho needs to to get the finger out and potentially stop this this Napoli steam train that's just ploughing through all of Serie A and, and beating everyone before them. So that's a, a huge game for for Roma. Um, and then yeah, the Derby d'Italia. You know, Juventus under Allegri mm. are, are slowly just starting to find a little bit of form. The football is dreadful as it always is uh, whenever Allegri and Juventus get together. But uh, they're starting to put some some wins together and um, and obviously into looking to bounce back after getting beat quite convincingly off of Lazio last weekend. So that'd be my two to watch. I'm, I think Andy's going to pick a different game uh, to watch on Sunday. Yeah. But that would be that would be my recommendation. So let's pass over to Andy. What's your fancy this weekend? I mean, obviously, it'd be a Liverpool versus United, wouldn't it? I mean, how much of a how much of an experience, how much of a pleasure it would be to watch? It'd be somewhat debatable. Uh, but, um, <laughs> no, it's a, it's it's a big game, and uh, regardless of in games like that, you know, Craig will say the same with games against Celtic. Is that form goes out? Such a cliche, but form goes out mm. the window in those kind of games. Uh, it's just it is literally case you ever turns upon the day and. Typically, when Ole's been under real, real pressure, he has been able to pull out some good results at the bag. Uh, he did a double over City last season in the league, uh, beat Chelsea. Uh, like it is, it is perfectly feasible that we could win that game by playing on the counter attack. But if we defend anything like we've been doing over the past few weeks, we'll get absolutely stuffed. Mm. And Tom, who are your beloved Southampton playing? Well, it's uh, it should. I don't know why it's not, but it should be on Super Sunday. Saints against Burnley, a goal first. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be Sexy. two. It's going to be two teams playing some silky attacking football. Some lovely, uh, lovely changes in play. Sean Dyche, um, Dice ball. Dice ball. Oh, you know, one hundred and ten percent Brexit football. Really just looking forward to that. Um, it's going to be. I'm. I'm interested in it. Um, obviously. Oh, I think we may have just missed. Uh, yeah, Oops. he's back. There we so, go. Oh, Sean Dyke is listening to the pod and switched our internet off. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, that's exactly what he's done. That's exactly what he's done. Um, he, no, um, Saints, Burnley. I mean, come on, it's going to be an awful game of football, isn't it? It's going to be Burnley sat back, 11 men behind the ball, and then Saints trying to score a goal, which is going to just be... A horrendous watch as we just try and lump ball after ball to Armando Broger and just leave him on his own with Nathan Redmond up front trying to feed on the scraps. Um, it, I don't. I, I think if there was ever a game to be nailed on last on match of the day, I think this is the one. Uh, it's going to be. I, I think. I, I think Saints will win though. I think it's going to be a scrappy one nil. Um, it's a. It's a big game for for us because with Norwich playing Chelsea, Newcastle away at. Crystal Palace, which I don't think is going to be an easy one for them. I mean, Newcastle are rubbish anyway. So, and Palace mm. seem to be playing some decent stuff. Uh, they're very unlucky not to win at Arsenal. Um, but if we were to beat Burnley, Burnley being 18th uh, would put us seven points clear of the relegation zone with games against Watford, Villa and Norwich coming up before Christmas. If we can amass a decent number of points against those sides, then we could find ourselves comfortably in mid-table and those fears of relegation eased for the time being, especially mm. with a tricky run of games to come afterwards. Uh, don't. Th it's not going to be one to set on record and watch later. <laughs> it's, it might just be a case of, okay, that happened. Let's move it on. It's always a terrible fixture. We do terribly against Burnley. 
I'm hoping that they're going to come at us a little bit more because they haven't won this season. Mm. Um, but we, we know what's going to happen. Ashley Barnes is going to score in the last minute. It's going to be given <laughs> by VAR. And despite the fact that he's literally got Salisa in a headlock and thrown him to the floor, it's going to be given. And Mike Dean, although he's not on VAR, is going to find his way into the VAR room and, uh, <laughs> and do that. So um, it's, it's not going to be pretty. Please just let us win. Please, I'm begging. Get, get this game over and done with. <laughs> you should write the matchday programme. <laughs> yeah. really selling it aren't you yeah, really, you've really got me you've got me up for it. I'm going to watch that now yeah. Yeah. Watch, it, watch, watch it be like a 5-4 classic now yeah, yeah. <laughs> free flow football and um... first on match of the day it's the greatest match ever watched it's the best game of the season <laughs> I mean how uh, no, it's, it's going to be crap there we go. I've sold it. I've sold it for Fair you. Enough. I'm not watching the United game now. <laughs> I, we've already got another fan. Yeah, that's someone else is going to watch. I mean, to be honest, it's probably more pleasurable. <laughs> it's going to be. It's, it's going to be one of those games that match of the day. Are going to be like that's all we've got time for. Oh, you, wait, what? There's another game. <laughs> there, there's an, oh, sorry. Uh, his his two minutes of a nil nil draw. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You were selling it almost on the same levels as David Mitchell when he did that sketch about football. But, yeah, <laughs> it was on on par there. Thousands Just, and thousands of hours of football. All of the football, yes. <laughs> Look at it move. But yes, just for the benefit of the listeners, some alternatives to also keep an eye out on. So uh, we've got West Ham versus Spurs, which I anticipate might be a good game. We've got El Clasico, Barcelona versus Real Madrid, which could be quite hot. Um, Also in France, we've got Marseille versus PSG. Uh, Marseille got (laughs) Arkadiusz Milik back, but yeah, I think it's going to be known for something else other than that. And then uh, just for a bit of variation, anyway, you've got Ajax versus PSV in Eredivisie. Uh, so they're the top two and they're separated by one point. So uh, Ajax, um, they had a big lead a few weeks ago and it's uh, reduced to one point. And if you really are bored after that point, you've also got my beloved Wickham Wanderers taking on Crew Alexander. So, uh, yeah, we're doing quite well in League One. So if you fancy a bit of uh, League One football, feel free I to just, uh, be I a Wickham just... fan. Just Go while on. we're here as well. So if you're a little bit bored on Friday lunchtime. Here comes the Moldovan League. It's a 12 o'clock kickoff on a Friday lunchtime. You've got Zoom Brew versus Dynamo Auto. And if you're bored on Saturday at lunchtime at 12 o'clock, you've got our favourite Thoresti. We haven't won a game against Petrick Love. You've got Sheriff against FC Bolton. CF- CF- yeah, SF Bolte at, at three o'clock. So there you go. If you really so is, that, bolt- is that top V bottom then on Saturday? Pedro yeah. Club versus the shit team. Oh, yeah, wow. basically. So that could that's be a little... guy's got his last one, yeah. That's yeah. going to have shades go. of Australia against American Samoa. Forty nine nil or something like that. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, it could be. It could be some scoreline. There you go. If you're sat there at twelve o'clock, going, "What am I doing with my life?" Well, there you go. <laughs> Find yourself an alternative dodgy stream of some description and crack on. <laughs> one thing I, I have to say: Could you imagine being like a substitute for that team? You're not good enough to get. <laughs> 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 
And on that depressing point, uh, we bring it to the end of the show. So without further ado, a massive thank you to Tom providing us not just the Southampton point of view, but just his general thoughts on football. But before we let you go, Tom, uh, can you tell our listeners and viewers where they can reach you and your pod? Yeah, so you can find the podcast at under underscore saints. It's a I don't know why I've called it that. It's the one that they gave me. It's not. Uh, it's a difficult one to keep on saying when you got the under and then you got the under after that. And uh, you can find me at t two one four Murray on Twitter. Thanks for very much for having me on. No, absolute well, pleasure. pleasure, pleasure. And make sure, listeners, that you are subscribed to our social media channels as well. So on Instagram at the Hopers Wonder Podcast and on Twitter at Hopers Pod. My match given thanks to Andy and Craig. Hope you have a good weekend. And more importantly, listener and viewers, hope you enjoy your weekend as well. And we'll see you next week. Actually, sorry, I apologize. We won't be here next week. We'll be here the following week because I am on holiday, so I do apologize. Uh, But yes, I will see you on the following week's podcast. So for now, take care. Goodbye.